A new MP3 recorder player thing here. It looks like it's going. Uh, so what I'd like to speak to you about today, um, it's been sort of topsy-turvy three weeks, so I, I decided rather than uh, do some, a somewhat incomplete uh, presentation of uh, the book of signs in John's gospel, I thought I would give you a kind of a dry run of a chapter conference, which I plan to give to the brothers on Thursday, on the O antiphons, the antiphons that we sing at Vespers between the 17th of December and the 23rd of December. And uh, I have a handout. Harrison, would you grab that uh, stack of sheets there and make sure everybody has a copy? By way of introduction for this, uh, I'd like to read something from the letter to the Hebrews. It's not just something, it's the very opening of the letter. So it says, in many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, who he appointed, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He reflects the glory of God and bears the very stamp of his nature, upholding the universe by his word of power. Uh, Letter to the Hebrews, in, in my opinion, is a, quite a neglected book. It really deserves more attention than it tends to get. Uh, but this, the reason I read this is because the author, um, some throughout the tradition have held that it was written by St. Paul. Um, I, I personally am not sure. I don't think it matters. Uh, it's been considered part of the Bible from a pretty early time. Uh, He's making a contrast between the many and varied ways that God spoke in the Old Testament and the one word which he uttered, which is Jesus Christ, his son. And um, what we're going to look at today is how uh, in the last week before Christmas, before the word leaps down from heaven in the middle of the night uh, and becomes incarnate in the Virgin Mary and is born into this world, uh, how the Old Testament predicts and utters many words. Uh, the Old Testament is like three times as long as the New, maybe four times. Um, and, and of course, when I say the New Testament is one quarter the size of the Old Testament, um, that's sort of immaterial because, again, the, the idea is that God speaks one word. That word is Christ. And this is the one word that interprets all the multiplicity of words that we use as human beings. Uh, and the O antiphons kind of help us to see this. They take, they gather up all the fruits of these words, uh, the harvest of the Old Testament, and point them to their goal. I'd like to use, before we go into looking at the actual texts of the O antiphons and talk about how we uh, incorporate these in our life in the monastery here, I wanted to bring up two other concepts, one uh, from philosophical history and one from church history. From church history, uh, there is, uh, unfortunately, I didn't write down the, the um, citation, so you'll have to just take my word for this. Uh, the, the medieval Cistercians had a great interest in uh, this concept that they called the verbum abbreviatum, the shortened word. Uh, and this is, uh, this is taken from the Latin text of Romans. St. Paul, in this case, is quoting Isaiah, but you know how these, these translations went in, in the early days. They could be kind of loose. Um, and uh, 
what St. Paul is, seems to be getting at is that, you know, God sort of speaks once and certain things happen. The Cistercians in this uh, saw God speaking again his one word. And not only is the word shortened because it's only one word and it's not many words, but it's shortened because Christ actually empties himself and becomes a little baby. He says a really short word in the sense that it's a really tiny uh, person in our midst. Um, but the point of this is that, again, all of, all of our ideas, all of our aspirations, all of our experiences somehow are meant to be funneled, to be channeled toward this relationship we have with Christ. And Christ, by coming into the world, by being God's son, interprets for us all of our experiences. Okay? Now, this sounds very abstract, but let me, let me uh, use Aristotle for a moment to help us understand why, how we can actually do this. Let's say, you know, this morning, uh, I, I didn't sleep well last night. I was preparing my talk for you guys today in my homily, so I'm kind of tired. So I have this desire to drink coffee, okay? But I also have a desire not to be high, strong, and nervous. And as a choleric temperament, I have a tendency to sort of uh, have a short temper when I drink too much coffee. So how do I balance these two desires, to be patient and to have enough energy to make it through the oblate meeting this morning? How do, how do I decide between those things? How much coffee do I drink? This is a kind of trivial example. Uh, what about uh, more important examples about conflicting desires that we have? Uh, or conflicting ideas of what's good for us. So let's say, um, uh, you know, a, a good would be the alleviation of poverty, uh, but another good would be sort of limitation of government influence and, and, and uh, the encouragement of business and so on. How do we mediate between these two? Uh, we all run into conflicts of things that are good in our lives. You know, how much time should we spend with our children? How much time should we spend on our, uh, on our own, praying, doing recreative things that uh, are only interest me? You know, how much of that is good? How much do I need to spend with my spouse? How much time do I need to spend at work? How do I resolve all of these things? Normally, we resolve them sort of ad hoc, right? We just, we kind of make a decision and see how it works out. And then we evaluate whether it was a good idea to spend more time at work this week than at home. Um, and we say, well, I've been spending too much time at work. I've got to spend more time with my family. Or we say, you know, I've been watching too much television. And uh, even though it's been all the history channels, so it's been good edifying stuff, uh, I think it'd be better for me to read or it'd be better for me to exercise and get in shape. Um, my, my, both my parents had heart trouble, so it was really important for me to uh, good, have good cardiovascular health so I don't have heart trouble, okay? So all these kinds of things. We're always making decisions, practically speaking, about what is good for us to do. And how do we order these? How do we decide which goods are more important than others? As I have indicated, some of it's by experience, right? And eventually through experience and through sort of thinking through these things, meditating on them, reflecting on them, we come up with a hierarchy of goods, right? So like relaxing, watching television, maybe watching some silly sitcom once in a while isn't so bad, but it's not so important that I should neglect more important goods like being, spending time with my family, educating myself, earning money, 
um, providing for my children's education, all those sorts of things are of a higher priority than watching Judge Judy or whatever I, I like to watch, you know? Um, I, I, I've never actually watched Judge Judy, but I, I, uh, I came across uh, her when I was preparing my homily last week, and I, I made a joke about Doug Llewellyn, and I, I thought, uh, I'm kind of dating myself, because it was clear that lots of people didn't know who Doug Llewellyn was. <laughs> uh, he was the, the reporter in the People's Court back in the 80s. Um, so what, what happens is, through trial and error, through reflection, through advice that we get from other people, we start to order in our lives what we consider to be more good and less good. And, you know, there are certain things that are less good that are still quite licit and probably important in certain instances, but ultimately, you know, what's most important for me is to be confident that I've lived the best life that I can live. And so um, that's, the, that's the greatest good. What happens is... Uh, in, in, when we transport or translate this uh, idea of Aristotle, so Aristotle says, you know, the most important thing is that we be happy. Or um, that's not the best English translation um, because uh, it sounds too sort of ephemeral. But as I said, to be confident that I've lived the best life that I can. That, that's what Aristotle's really getting at. That's, the, that's what all people try to do. Like that's, that's what is good for us, Okay. As I say, when we translate this into religious terms, we would say our salvation, which the root meaning of salvation is just to be healthy, to flourish. Salus in uh, Latin can simply mean health. When we say salve regina uh, to the Blessed Virgin Mary, we're sort of wishing her well. You know, may you prosper, may you be happy, may you be glorified, etc. Um, so salvation is this idea of Aristotle's of being happy, being fulfilled, living a good life, being able to look back on the decisions I've made and, and being confident that I've done my best, uh, to this new uh, spiritualized, transformed idea, which is to become members of Christ. And so Christ is actually this unifying word again. So all of our attempts to be happy find their interpretation, find their goal in Christ. Okay, so no longer is it just being happy in a kind of secular sense or a, a way that an atheist might be happy, but to know Christ and, and to know salvation, to flourish by knowing the truth about ourselves in the revelation given to us in Christ. So we have many and varied ideas of what's good for us watching television, playing sports, working for a living, raising our kids, participating in political life of our, our city, our state, our nation, etc., etc. How do we organize these and come up with some kind of sense of how they relate to each other? It's by relating all of them to Jesus Christ at some level, okay? So he is this word that unifies the many and various words that we use to try to describe what's good for us, okay? So um, the O antiphons, what I'm getting at in all of this, is that uh, the O antiphons help us to gather up all of the, the broken crumbs, you know, the, the fragments of the bread left over from the, the breaking of the bread and, and keep it and refer it to Christ. 
So what are the O-antiphons and uh, how do they work? <clears throat> so I've mentioned already that the O-antiphons, as they are called, occur on December 17th through the 23rd. So they are the immediate preparation for the incarnation. <coughs> They're called O antiphons because uh, in each of them, they are the antiphons that are used with the Magnificat at Vespers. So at the beginning of the Magnificat and at the end of the Magnificat, we sing O Sapientia, or we sing O Adonai, etc. Uh, each day of the week, and in each of these, we address Christ by a different title. So we address our Lord by the name, O Wisdom, O Lord Adonai, which is the, the Hebrew name, uh, the Hebrew word for Lord. O Root of Jesse, Radix Yesse, Key of David, Oriens. Uh, the, the translation you've got, I think, says, O Day Spring. Literally, it's uh, Rising Sun, the place of the Rising Sun. Rex Gentium, King of the Nations, and O Emmanuel, uh, God is with us, Emmanuel. These are all titles given to various persons in the Old Testament that are seen in the light of the incarnation to be prophecies of Christ and to help us understand who he is. And so to, uh, as I was saying in my homily this morning, enter into a deeper understanding of who Christ is and therefore help us to order our lives in such a way that everything we do reflects our belief in Christ. Um, so each of these antiphons, we address Christ and we use this vocative, O, you know, O wisdom, O Lord. And then we, we ask the Lord to come, you know, veni domine, come Lord. And uh, finally, he arrives on, on the night of the 24th. Um, if you look at the first letter of each of these antiphons, when you, excluding the O, because if you just look at the O, obviously it's seven O's, but if you look at the next letter and you start on the 23rd, you get E-R-O-C-R-A-S. Whether this was by design or whether some clever monk just figured this out at some point in the Middle Ages, uh, those seven letters spell two Latin words, arrow, cross. Uh, arrow means I will be, or I will be there, and cross means tomorrow. <laughs> so uh, a sort of pious interpretation is that all of these antiphons, again, are saying, are, are Christ actually speaking to us, tomorrow I will be with you, right? Uh, some, some scholars debate whether this was intentional or not, but uh, uh, because different monasteries in the Middle Ages had different O antiphons at different times. These are the ones that have become standard. Uh, but I, I personally think it's, if it is a coincidence, it's quite a remarkable one. <laughs> um, it's a little bit esoteric, but uh, it's kind of entered into the lore of, of Catholic liturgy that that's one of the indications uh, that the liturgy is giving us that uh, tomorrow I will be there with you. Um, so, 
each of these titles, as I mentioned, refers to a prophecy of Isaiah, and I'm going to go through them with you one by one. Uh, so let's first take a look at O Sapientia. Uh, so the, I've given you the, the Latin text and then the uh, English translation. O wisdom, uh, coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, reaching from one end to the other, mightily and sweetly ordering all things. So there's that idea of ordering that I've talked about. In this case, um, this quote here, reaching from end to end mightily, ordering all things sweetly, this actually is a reference to the book of wisdom. Okay, The book of wisdom, uh, chapter 8. What's interesting about the, the book of wisdom is... Uh, Scholars tell us it's probably written in uh, the century right before the coming of Christ. It's probably written in about the year 50 BC. It's written in Greek. And this same eighth chapter of wisdom uh, includes a reference to the four cardinal virtues that were uh, elaborated by none other than Aristotle. Okay, so Aristotle is actually quoted in the Bible. So my, my reference to Aristotle is not entirely uh, gratuitous. And this idea that wisdom orders all things uh, is, again, very Aristotelian. Aristotle himself, uh, his father was a, a doctor, and Aristotle grew up a, as a biologist. And his first interest was cataloging sort of the first person to catalog the different species of animals. Uh, might not be aware of this, uh, but um, he was very attentive to how different animals, uh, their skeletons were fitted together and the relationships between different species and so on. And he used this same uh, understanding of how things relate to each other and are ordered together to understand the intellectual life. And so when, again, when he writes his Nicomachean Ethics, <coughs> from which I, I've uh, gotten this idea of the ordering of our goods and desires, uh, he goes about sort of cataloging, well, what are the things that people say are good? What are the things that people want? What are, the people, what are the things that people say will bring them happiness? And then when there are conflicts between these things, how do they order them? How do they come up with some kind of rank between goods, between things that we say we want? Uh, and what's the thing that orders all of them? And again, he says happiness. But the, the biblical author takes this and transports it or translates it into uh, the idiom of Israel and says that it's God's wisdom that orders all things. Um, we would say that God's wisdom is Christ. Okay? And the letter to the Hebrews makes a lot of reference to this again. That wisdom, <coughs> God's wisdom is that which orders all things. When we look at, uh, I was just showing uh, Brother Gabriel, uh, we're, we're studying uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. Uh, we use that in the monastery to teach moral philosophy. And it's helpful if you're going to read Dante to understand astronomy, uh, because Dante makes many references to astronomy. And, uh, you know, be. I, my sense is that most people growing up today don't spend a lot of time just watching uh, the stars at night or the planets or the sun. Like, uh, but if you do look at these things, there's this amazing 
order to how the sun moves, how it moves through different uh, places in the sky in different seasons. I was explaining, uh, we can see this in the church because we're in the church at the same time every day all year. And what you find is you're, when you're facing east like this, uh, during the summer, the, the sun rises over here and goes almost straight overhead, right? In the winter, it rises actually over here, and then it does like this kind of motion, right? And so during when we're eating our meal, it's at about this angle here. It makes it very difficult for the guy reading because it comes right in the window. <laughs> but during the summer, it's up here, okay? So the, the sun appears to do a kind of spiraling this way and then back each year, okay? And there are all these different interesting orders of how the planets move. Like, so if you look at the stars, they, they tend to move the same together uh, all the time. And then there are these other bright spots that are not stars, they're planets. They're called planets because they move around. They don't follow the same path every night. They, they depart from this motion of the stars and they do these weird loop-de-loops and so on. Uh, the planet Venus is often called the morning star because uh, it's only visible at the horizon at uh, sunrise and sunset. You can't see it at midday. And that's because Venus, is, we know now, that's because Venus is closer to the sun than we are. And, uh, it, you know, when the sun's up, it's, it's, it's always near the sun. Because if it's nighttime, we can't see Venus because Venus can't be on the other side of us from the sun. <laughs> right? Because it has to be closer to the sun. And uh, anyway, these, these things, um, it's helpful to know these things when you read Dante because he... he wants to show that the order of the stars is part of God's wisdom. It's what informs our life and makes sense of them. Just as the ordering of different biological species of animal orders our lives and makes sense of them. Uh, so uh, the book of wisdom draws on uh, Aristotle's understanding of the ordering of things, but then elevates it to a theological level. So finally, after announcing who Christ is in this prophecy, Christ is wisdom coming forth from the mouth of the Most High. That's from Isaiah. Reaching end to end mightily, sweetly ordering all things. That's wisdom. <clears throat> come, the, all the O Antiphons invoke our Lord. Come, Lord, come and teach us the way of prudence. Uh, there is Aristotle's main virtue that the Book of Wisdom quotes. Prudentia. It's the cardinal virtue that orders all the other ones. Like, how do you know the difference between being rash and being brave? How do you know the difference between being a coward and knowing when you can't win a fight, so you gotta run away? <laughs> like, how do you know that you're actually brave and not either rash or a coward? You, do, you know this because you're prudent and you know when to fight and when not to fight, right? How do you know if you're temperate, if you're, you're, if you're eating enough, but not too much. You do this by prudence, okay? So prudence orders all of these things. And Christ, again, as the wisdom of God coming forth from God's <clears throat> mouth, uh, shows us the way to order our lives so that they comport with the truth. Come and teach us the way of prudence, okay? So that's the first one, O sapientia. All right. Uh, the, the Isaiah prophecy is this one, Isaiah 11. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, etc. Okay.
Adonai. O Adonai and leader of the house of Israel, who appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law on Sinai, come and redeem us with an outstretched arm. Okay, so a number of prophecies in this one, a number of symbols here. So leader of the house of Israel, obviously this uh, initially refers to David and then David's line. Now we know that our Lord is uh, of the family of David, okay? This is part of the importance of the family trees that we get in Matthew's gospel and in Luke's gospels, that they show that our Lord descended from David. This means that he uh, actually is a claimant to the throne of Israel. Uh, Something I find very interesting in all the controversies that our Lord goes through with the Pharisees and Sadducees and so on, no one ever brings up the possibility that he might not be from David's family. That's accepted by everybody. The question is whether or not you know, he actually is the one to sort of reinstitute the, the Davidic line, which had uh, died out at the time of Zerubbabel after the exile. Um, but uh, our, our Lord, uh, you know, we would say he is the son of David, therefore he is the king of Israel, and we'll find out in later in the Oantiphons he's the king of all the nations. Uh, but he's the leader of the house of Israel. This leader, uh, the the prophecies in the Psalms and elsewhere, talk about the importance of this king uh, judging with righteousness, deciding with equity, um, making sure that the poor and the downtrodden are not uh, neglected, uh, ordering all things, again, this time in a political way, ordering all things in righteousness and judging things and and putting them in their proper order. Uh, So this is another uh, prophecy. Now, when we say that uh, he appeared to Moses in the fire of the burning bush and gave him the law, this I think uh, is not only interesting, but it's a challenge for us. Because in my experience, uh, when we think of God giving the law on Sinai, our tendency Perhaps, just this for each of you to check in your own heart and your own understanding, we think of God the Father giving the law rather than the Son. But if the Son is the Word of God, when God speaks to Moses, it's Christ that he's speaking. Okay, so when, whenever God speaks in the Old Testament, it is Christ that is the one Word that manifests itself in this multiplicity of words. The multiplicity of words in the law, for example, reflect the one word that God speaks, and that word is Christ, okay? So the fathers of the church sometimes can be confusing this way because they speak about Christ speaking in the Old Testament. And what they mean is that if if Christ is the word of God, anytime God speaks, it is Christ that he speaks, And then it's a matter of the particular time, place, need, that the interpretation, what what Moses hears from the burning bush, what Moses hears on Sinai, is adapted to the particular needs of the people at that moment. But what behind it, what he's hearing is Christ. What he's hearing is God's word, right? Um, so it's this word again that sums up the multiplicity of words in the Old Testament. Um, 
But in my experience, I'll just say, we're teaching this to the guys in class, for example, it's not an easy one for us to grasp intellectually, but also just sort of affectively. But I would, I would point out that if we sort of hear God the Father speaking in the Old Testament and then Christ speaking in the New, uh, we are in danger of becoming sort of Manichaeans, that we have sort of one God in the Old Testament, one God in the New, a different God. Tony, you had a question? Or? Yeah. I'll let you know. I was recalling you were speaking about talk about the obligation of Catholics to see the truth of God in other faiths, if I'm so young. Um, I, I would say we'd have to understand that in a sort of different valence, you know, different level. Uh, the, the prophecies spoken in the Old Testament exist on, on one level. Um, on the other hand, because there's only one truth, there's only one God, yes, anything that's true and noble in other cultures outside of Israel uh, is, points to God. And it's, it's the, the task of the church and her preachers to show how this is true, right? Yeah, yeah you're welcome. Then uh, uh, this is part of, again, in my, in my homily this morning, I was, I was trying to point that out, that uh, I, I'm not a huge fan of modernity, you know, and, uh, uh, and at the same time, um, Cardinal George once said at a, a meeting I was at, you know, to evangelize the culture, we first have to love it. Like if, if, we, if, we, if we hate the culture or reject it, the, uh, the seeds of the word, to use Justin Martyr's idea, that God has planted there to bring forth a harvest, we won't see, we won't be able to cultivate. But anytime there are human beings we're all, even though we're, we're broken because of sin, we're all striving in some imperfect way for what's good. And whatever is there that's striving for the good, it, we, we as Christians need to capitalize on to point, to tie that good to Christ again, you know, to give it the proper direction it's supposed to have. And uh, uh, yeah, I've just, I've just been introduced to the philosophy of Bernard Williams. Uh, yeah, and... Uh, um, for him, the, you know, the, the conviction of the individuals is really important. If we, if, we sim, if we never go beyond sort of adopting someone else's standpoint on, by rote, then uh, there, there's the, the danger that we could be misled by just you know, somebody else's ideas. We, we have to each wrestle with the truth. And this is true of all cultures as well. If, so, I may just yeah. one question. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> It, it, also, it strikes me then that not just the truth that's found in other religions that exist today, mm -hmm. but religions that have existed in the past. Yeah. So, for yeah. example, the reference to Christ as morning star, mm -hmm. that's also a reference to Osiris in the Egyptian religion. Could be. I, I, I can't weigh in on that, I'm afraid. But, um, yeah. Osiris <clears throat> resurrects the souls mm -hmm. to, to the dead, I think, on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. um, there are these shards, echoes, fragments, at least it seems to me, mm -hmm. of the truth we recognize spread all through human spirituality. Mm -hmm. 
Sure, sure. And this re it requires prudence to tease these out. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but again, I will say that uh, Israel occupies a privileged position as the as the you know the, the true religion that that uh, prepared the way for Christ. And uh, when we speak of other cultures, we're always speaking by way of analogy rather than uh, direct equality. You know. And again, at Nostra Aetate places the the Jewish people on a different level than than uh, pagan cultures say. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, good. So that is, uh, any other questions about this one? Especially this idea of Christ being God's word on Sinai. Yeah, Matt. Um, you were talking about how, you're, you're, uh, how the brothers find it difficult to grasp this idea. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's, probably true of, of most Christians that they have this uh, very sharp distinction between God the Father and uh, the Son as uh, just as, as a mental construct and um, I, I mean I think it's extremely challenging not to have that if, if uh, you know I'm just now for the last few months going through probably my, my first sort of uh, genuine reading of the Old Testament mm -hmm. my entire life. Mm -hmm. And um, you come across, like, like something that, that, that jumps out is sort of like uh, this, uh, you know, God doesn't, doesn't encourage the, uh, the sort of immoral behavior of, of the, the Jews, but, but he's, he's kind of indifferent to it, you know, like, Oh, you know, now you're gonna go kill twenty thousand Midianites or whatever it is, and um, and it's, there's just this real sort of you know cognitive dissonance when when uh, you, you read that sort of thing and mm -hmm. you're, you try to reconcile it um, in your mind with uh, a God of, of, of peace and love, and so I'm just curious. I mean, do you do you give the brothers any any sort of uh, any kinds of guidance or, or techniques for overcoming this. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the classic text nowadays is uh, Delubach's uh, Medieval Exegesis. Um, he explains in great detail in that book, and, and mind you, uh, if, if you do embark on reading this, it's very extensive and uh, uh, with the most amazing uh, apparatus of endnotes uh, of all time. I think it's an incredibly erudite book, and it's actually, I think, four books, the last of which hasn't been translated yet, I think. But I do have them read the first couple of volumes. Um, what I can say here is that um, when we talk about Lexio Divina and our spiritual reading, uh, one of the traditions of the church is to understand the different levels of scripture. So we have the literal level, and then we have the three spiritual levels, and those are more important than the literal. The literal we have to understand, and the spiritual level, uh, the three spiritual levels have to agree in some way with the literal. But if we only read the literal, that the you know the Israelites went out and slaughtered these Midianites, or you know they drew lots and executed Achan because he he was the only guy who took plunder from Ai when they destroyed it in Joshua. Um, then uh, we are we are going to find ourselves in a kind of Manichaean struggle because the God of the Old Testament will appear to be the sort of vengeful, 
law-bound despot of some sort or other. Um, but to understand the spiritual readings behind the, the literal uh, is to understand how they <coughs> foresee Christ in some way. Um, and, and in fact, uh, and, and to understand that, that God the Father, when we sp speak of God in the Old Testament, it's, it is the Holy Trinity we're speaking about. It's not just God the Father. And it's, it's not that the two, it's not that Jesus sort of introduces a new idea about God. It's that this idea of God was always there in the Old Testament, but we couldn't read it right until we had the Holy Spirit. Uh, the three spiritual levels, does anybody know what they are by any chance? Now, some of you have been working through Lexio Divina with Brother Ignatius. I don't know if he's used this technique. Uh, so the first spiritual level is the Christological. Okay? So first of all, we want to find Christ in all the passages of the Old Testament. Sometimes the way we do this is pretty fanciful. Okay? So you know, where do we find Christ in the slaughter of the Midianites? Uh, well, we would say that Christ did spiritual battle with the forces of evil at a spiritual level. And that... Uh, he drives away, say, demonic temptations from us, which are uh, multifarious. Um, the second spiritual level is the moral. And so after we relate the story of the, the Old Testament to Christ in some way, then we apply it to our own lives, especially the life of our own soul. Um, the, let me give you the classic example, so I'll make it easy on myself. The classic example is the Exodus. Okay, and Dante uses this again. So when Israel comes forth from Egypt, the literal meaning of the story is, God came down, smote the firstborn of the Egyptians, part of the Red Sea, Israelites walked through the sea, Pharaoh and his chariots chased them, the sea collapsed on the chariots, wiped them out, Israel goes off to the promised land. That's, the, that's, the, that's what the story says happened, right? <clears throat> now the Christological meaning is that uh, when Christ passed through death, he passed through the waters of the Red Sea, through death to the other side, wiped out sin, wiped out death, and went on to the promised land of heaven. In our souls, this happens when we are baptized, we pass through the Red Sea, sin is wiped away, death is eliminated, our souls pass over to heaven. And then the final spiritual uh, symbol is what's called the anagogical, which is the end times or the ecclesial. And this is uh, often refers to the church. And so the church at the end of time, so we're still sort of in this middle place here where we, we're both in the world and not of it. At, at the end of time, every tear will be wiped away. We will pass through. Uh, the time of tribulation and the sheep and goats will be separated and there will be, will be in the promised land forever and ever in heaven. So those are the different levels that we're reading into the story of the Exodus. Um, and as I say, the literal meaning is the least important. It just sort of sets the stage for understanding what Christ was coming to show us, that we, which is the truth about ourselves and God. All right. Michael, you, you had a question. Yeah. Same thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, De, De Lubach, um, who, who's probably my, my great theological hero, um, aside from maybe Origen, uh, he, he shows that there, you know, the, the understanding that the fathers of the church have of this technique and the way it was used in the Middle Ages is quite sophisticated. You know, I'm giving you just a very brief overview. 
But it's also theologically necessary because it is true that uh, you know, the, the stories in the Old Testament are not always edifying at the literal level. And in fact, a lot of times they aren't very edifying at all. And sometimes the way the fathers read them uh, can make us a little uncomfortable because it's like, well, hey, you didn't deal with the literal problem here that the Midianites were exterminated or that you know, Amalek is uh, you know, God's enemy forever or whatever. Um, and uh, what, what the fathers, it, it really requires a conversion of our own outlook to, um, to an ecclesial outlook, to you know, what, what the church has taught. And what I find helpful about Delubach is that he shows this isn't an intellectually irresponsible thing. We're not just sort of changing the meaning of the Old Testament, uh, but that the, the real meaning of the Old Testament only becomes obvious with the coming of Christ. It's the, God's one word that unlocks the true meaning of what happened. And the, the authors of the Old Testament, when they wrote these things down, didn't fully understand what, what the significance of their own words was. That's because they were prophets. <laughs> you know, they, the, and it's only now that we can see them. So uh, sounds like we have another topic for another talk, though. <laughs> Tony, one, one more question before we pass on. Um, not unimportant, not unimportant. Yeah. Well, when we say literal, I don't mean historical in the sense like it had to have happened exactly that way. I'm meaning what the story says. So, um, uh, yeah, so in that way, but that doesn't mean the historical is, is totally without meaning. It's just that the, whatever did happen can only have meaning insofar as we Christians related to Christ and, and God's plans uh, to, to bring all things into one in Christ make sense of all these things. So whatever did happen on, on the historical level, so when I say literal again, I I'm, I'm primarily mean how the story goes. So, you know, literally God created Adam and Eve as two human beings in a garden. But historically what happened is some, perhaps, you know, we, we, we don't know for 100% certainty because we weren't there, but perhaps there was some kind of long evolutionary process that brought about <coughs> humanity. Uh, but we start with the story as it is in the Bible uh, first a, as a story. Yes. And then what, what, what literally happened is that God did X, Y, and Z things. And then Adam and Eve did these things and they transgressed and so on. Does that make sense, the distinction? <laughs> yeah, well, again, and I would say that um, in a similar way that, that pagan cultures are worthy of respect insofar as they point to the truth, history, anthropology, all, this, all the human studies of, of the world, the cosmos, are worthy of respect in as much as they point to the truth. Um, but the Bible occupies a privileged place, and the stories, whether they're mythological or, or literally true on the historical level, point in a particularly um, uh, privileged way to Christ in a way that, that, that just the historical record as we encounter it in fossils <coughs> doesn't. Okay? Yeah. Your comments about St. John the Baptist uh -huh. as the 
the most important herald mm -hmm. um, really speak to me on this point because it's, well, I guess I want to, the, the way that I try to bring in the lens of all of the human spiritual experiences is to say that wherever there has been truth in spiritual experience, it is a signpost mm -hmm. or perhaps an older herald, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, of the truth that is most perfectly heralded in St. John and mm -hmm. in the Christ. Mm -hmm. That's how I make sense of it. Sure, sure. But I would just say we, we only know whether it's true or false because of Christ. So it's, you know, whether it comports with that truth. So that's, that's, the, that's where it... Uh, um, whereas, again, what we're doing here is we're, we're learning to understand who Christ is through the revealed word of the Bible. Okay, so, so that, again, occupies a privileged place in which, say, again, sort of anthropological or, or comparative religions will not be as illuminative. So, uh, do you mind if I press on? Okay, uh, let's see, we've got a few minutes left. Uh, Root of Jesse. <clears throat> uh, Jesse is David's father, and um, you know, the story of this, the choice of David is a great one. I, I forget exactly which chapter it is. Well, I've got a Bible here, why don't I check it? It's in the first book of Samuel. Um, is it in, I wanna say it's chapter 16 but I, I could be wrong. Um, yeah, it's, it's a little earlier than that. Oh, no, no, wait, wait, First Samuel. So the people say, yeah, we want a king. And uh, Samuel is the last of the great judges of the people. And he says, yeah, you don't want a king because they're going to they're gonna conscript your, your young men to serve in their armies. They're going to uh, take your daughters to serve as perfumers in the court and all this. And and, uh, you know, basically you're going to have all the troubles of people who have kings. But if you want to reject God and have a human king, it's, uh, and God says to Samuel, yeah, we'll do what they want because uh, it's not you, the judges they're rejecting, but it's me. It's, it's God who's the true king. Um, and so they first select Saul and uh, Saul runs into trouble. And it's actually uh, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel. Uh, Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. God reveals this to him to do this. God has selected Jesse's youngest son, David. And we find out later on that God has chosen him because he has this interesting quality. He's a man after God's own heart. So there's a sense in which David uh, uh, foreshadows Christ in being particularly close to God and what, what matters to God, right? So if someone's... Uh, is after you know, your own heart, they value the same things you value. So David values what God values. And uh, it's interesting, David uh, has this kind of mythological presentation. So Jesse has seven sons. Seven is the mark of completion. That's the usual symbolism of seven. And he trots out all seven sons. And when Samuel sees the oldest one and the second oldest one, he thinks, yeah, these guys look like kings. They're like big and strong. And, handsome and, and look like they're good fighters and so on. God says, oh, I haven't chosen them. And God says, very interestingly, you know, you're looking at this like people look at it. I, I want you to look at it the way I look at it. And God chooses the youngest who's sort of outside. He's, he's out in the pasture <coughs> after the sheep. The name David is interesting too because uh, it's, uh, it literally means, uh, you know, it's a, it's a nickname, uh, like my favorite, my precious one, 
Um, my, you know, the one for whom I have affection. The, the name Dodi, you know, this name, it uh, shows up in Arabic. Is, uh, it's, it's, you know, again, it's like uh, my pet. <laughs> uh, it's a very affectionate term. In the Song of Songs, when uh, the, the singer refers to his beloved, he refers to her as uh, his Daud. So his beloved one. So David uh, occupies this particular place uh, and um, he springs forth from the root of Jesse. So root of Jesse, standing as a sign among the peoples. Before you, kings will shut their mouths. To you, the nations will make their prayer. Come and deliver us and delay no longer. So this uh, comes from Isaiah 11, the very famous prophecy. A shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse and a branch shall grow out of his roots. So David occupies this very large place in the understanding of the Israelites of the Old Testament. He is the prototypical king. Uh, even in spite of the fact that we, we have a tendency today to remember David's big fall. <laughs> we, we, forget, we forget that David, uh, God was fond of David. I think Cardinal George said uh, once, he got in trouble for this. Not trouble, but a lot of people complained about it. He wrote an article in the New World in which he challenged the idea that God loves everybody the same. He said, well, some, some people God, God loves more. <laughs> and uh, it's a mystery because, you know, at, at the one time God loves everyone the same. At the same time, there's some people God loves more. St. Benedict says that the abbot should be this way. He should love everybody the same, except if they're better in virtue. <laughs> Right? And David, there's something about David that, uh, you know, God's heart went out to David um, because David loved God. David loved God more than other, others, you know. Um, and um, uh, so all of the kings of Israel were measured against David. And all of them came up short, by the way. Especially in Chronicles, we hear this. The chronicler didn't like the kings of Israel and Judah very much. <laughs> they all... Uh, only Hezekiah and Josiah sort of made it close to being what a king should be. But David was what a king should be, and his major mark was that he loved God. Okay, so, and because he loved God, he was concerned with the poor, uh, he was concerned with justice, uh, etc. He was concerned with the temple, right worship of God, and so on. Uh, so when we read about the kings, these are all ways of meditating on what a king should be like. And we should remember that the king was always a stand-in for God himself in the sense that uh, in the book of Judges, God's supposed to be king. Okay, and in say the Psalms, if you look through Psalms uh, 96 to 99 or 100 or so, they're all about God being king. The Lord is king with majesty enrobed. Uh, but it's, it's as if the people of Israel panicked you know, they, they didn't trust that God would come through. They wanted a human king. So God said, okay. And God was able to do this because he foresaw that eventually there would be a human king who also was God. <laughs> so, um, so David is another type, another way of meditating on who Christ is. Um, and one of the orderings of things, again, is that Israel occupies a central place in our understanding. This is why uh, we, we haven't gotten rid of the Old Testament. Um, I, I said Manichaeans before, what I meant was Marcionites. So Marcion 
uh, was a second century priest uh, who, reading St. Paul, thought we should get rid of the Old Testament because it's all about an angry God who imposes this law. And now that grace has come, we can dispense with all of that. And the greater church said, no, you're wrong, Marcion. We have to keep the Old Testament. We have to keep an understanding of the centrality of Israel, the centrality of Jerusalem, the centrality of David. All of these things help us to make sense of who Christ is. Okay. Uh, So uh, later on in Isaiah chapter 11, we read, On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nation shall inquire of him and his dwelling shall be glorious. Uh, Sometimes this uh, word signal is rendered as ensign, which by the way, ensign, an ensign is one who carries the standard, right? The signal. And what we need with a standard, why do armies have standards in the old days? Do you know? Yeah, there are several reasons. Oh yeah, you've done, uh, yeah. So what's the principal reason? When you're going out to war, why do you need a standard? Yeah, yeah. Identify the place of the leader in the army. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, in early armies that had standards, they were ordered the standards for when it was time for the army to advance. Mm-hmm. Um, so part of it was to say it was who, part of it was to lead. Yeah. So the reason that in this prophecy, David is called the standard or the signal or the ensign uh, is that it shows again sort of where, which direction we're headed together as a people, as a church, um, it's to show where the leader is, right? So if we look to David, if we look to Christ, then we see where we're going. We know how to stick together. Because when, when, you know, when, when, when an army captures the other army standard, what happens? The army falls apart. The army falls apart. So if we, if we take our eyes off of Christ, then the church falls apart. You know? And, you know, I, I hear this a lot these days. There are lots of controversies in the church. And... Uh, there's a tendency to, you know, do like what, what happened in Corinthians. Well, I'm, I'm for this faction. I'm for that faction. I'm for that. But th- if we take our eyes off of Christ, uh, you know, Paul says, you weren't baptized into Paul. You're baptized into Christ, right? So we have to keep our eyes fixed on Christ. He's the one who gives us order and direction and then orders all of these different aspects of our lives. Um, but it's tempting, again, to panic like Israel did and sort of go for lesser things that make us feel sort of more secure in the, in the moment. So that's R, uh, the R of cross. So we have to move on to C, Oclavis, the key, key of David. Key of David and scepter of the house of Israel. You open and no one can shut. You shut and no one can open. Come and lead the prisoners from the prison house, those who dwell in darkness in the shadow of death. So this prophecy refers to the key bearer of the house of David at the time of Isaiah the prophet. His name was Shebna, actually, for what it's worth. Um, and uh, the key bearer is important because uh, the, the treasures of the king uh, the, or wh- whatever doors need locking or, or unlocking, um, you know, someone has to be taking care of... Uh, accessing these things when the king needs them. The king can't uh, keep track of all the storehouses on his own and so on. Same thing with the prison, etc. Um, 
The, the Latin word for the key bearer is janitor. Uh, we get our word janitor, uh, sort of unfortunately, uh, infelicitously, uh, from the Latin. And uh, the reason I say it's infelicitous is because uh, on the Feast of St. Peter, we have a couple feast days of St. Peter, uh, he's referred to as the janitor. He's the key bearer, right? So uh, Christ is the one who gives him the keys and it is the church that is able now, with the authority of Christ, to lock and unlock. Uh, so to set souls free, to bind things uh, in terms of observations, that, uh, observances that we have, uh, to make judgments about things, uh, to bring forth from the storeroom things old and new. And all these different images have to do with the key bearer. And it is Christ who has brought these keys and given them to us so that uh, in the church we actually have access. Uh, we, we can free the prisoners. We can bring out from uh, the Old Testament the, the different prophecies and uh, make sense of them, unlock them, as it were, find the treasure in them. Uh, so come and lead the prisoners out from the prison house, those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. Um, that shows up in the, the Benedictus, actually, the canticle that we sing at Lauds. The shadow of death has an interesting, this is going to show up in one other antiphon before we're done. Uh, the Hebrew word is actually one word, and it's death shadow. This appears in uh, Psalm 23, the famous uh, Lord is my shepherd. Even if I walk in the shadow of death, uh, I shall not fear because the Lord is by my side, right? Um, and so even, even in death, again, this is the fact that Christ went into the grave, descended into hell. No matter you know, what our separation, apparently, however we feel ourselves be separated from God, whatever darkness comes into our lives, Christ is there. He's been there already, Okay. And he is coming to unlock, you know, to free us from that darkness, whatever darkness it is that we're experiencing. Uh, so uh, just as the key bearer of David could do that. Okay. Oriens. Um, the translation here again has morning star. I've added my own translation. Oriens. Uh, the, the Latin word orior, uh, oriere, means to rise. And this is, uh, I've been teaching Latin in, ad in addition to moral philosophy. Oriens is the present participle, nominative form, and it means rising. Um, and so when we orient something, it means we turn and face the place where the sun is rising. So we turn to the east. We call it east now. But it, uh, it literally means place of the rising sun. Uh, so, O rising sun, or morning star, as I say, when Venus is the morning star, it always rises <coughs> in the east uh, because it's, it's next to the sun. Um, splendor of light, eternal and sun of righteousness, come and enlighten those who dwell in darkness and the shadow of death. So here we have um, this idea of the shadow of death. And instead of being freed from this kind of imprisonment, we're being enlightened by the, the rising of the sun. 
So uh, there are many ways to talk about before the coming of Christ. When we look at the Old Testament, sometimes it's spoken of as a kind of shadow, sometimes as veiled. There's always a sense that whatever the people were seeing about God at this time, there was something not quite complete about it. There wasn't the fullness, just as when we look at things in the dark, we can't see anything uh, with clarity. We're working on a puzzle right now. Um, from time to time, we do this for recreation in the monastery. It's a it's really beautiful uh, picture of Budapest and the parliament building and the uh, Danube. And uh, we did the, the parliament building went really fast because it's got all these windows and lights and the bridge went pretty fast because it's very distinct. Now we're doing the sky. <laughs> it's like one blue piece after another, 2,000 piece puzzle. And the, the, it's especially difficult if you, if you just happen to be passing through the rec room and uh, there aren't a lot of lights on, you look at these pieces and they all look the same color. You can't see the, the different shades. Turn on the lights and you suddenly see, oh, that's like more purple. This one's sort of pale. This one's got some cloud in it, this one. And you start to separate and order them and then you can put the, the puzzle together because there's light. The light illuminates and, and helps us make distinctions between things. So the entry of Christ into the world, the rising of God's light into the world, suddenly makes sense of things that before that uh, didn't seem to, they, they seem to be um, non-differentiated and uh, hard to separate and make sense of, to make order of. Again, I would just say that this is what the fathers do with great zeal with the Old Testament. They take the light of Christ and sort of reinterpret everything because they saw that before what the author of Judges wrote about the Midianites or the author of Numbers, I think is another place where the Midianites don't fare very well. Um, what Moses say, writes this down. He's writing what he sees, but it's through a veil. You know, it's, so he sees what happens, but he can't really describe the significance of it because he doesn't yet have the fullness of Christ's light. And it's that light that makes sense of all these things. Okay? Let me pause for just a moment here and see if there are any questions about any of this. This is a lot of challenging theology in a short time, which is kind of interesting because we just sing these antiphons and they're done with. <laughs> There's a lot to them. Yes, Dennis? Uh, the Rex... Mm-hmm. That word, but that's part of a song, isn't it? One of the chants? Rex <coughs> Gentium? Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, it shows up in a few places. Uh, I should say that uh, the, the hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that's actually a, a, a version of these O antiphons, right? Um, I'm, I, I'll probably freeze up and forget the actual lyrics if I try to sing it for you now. But Emmanuel, of course, that's one of them we're getting to. Sure. Uh, ransom captive Israel, lonely exile here, until the Son of God appear. Uh, rejoice, O Israel. Yeah. O come, right? Who orders all things mightily, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. So if we were, I, I, I could have looked this up, uh, but I, I didn't. Um, but it, go, go check out the, this and you'll see that uh, it's, in, um, 
sort of boiled down into that hymn. Rex Gentium, though, yes, it, it does show up as a separate chant. I think it's uh, an offertory or communion for um, Christ the King. So, um, uh, are, we, are we there yet? Yeah, so let's do Rex Gentium. O King of Nations and their desire, the cornerstone making both one, come and save the human race which you fashioned from clay. Limo, uh, translating limo as clay is, is kind of a euphemism. Limo means more like slime. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not such a nice word. Uh, uh, so, but let me talk about desideratus. Uh, this is a really interesting thing. So, um, in the book of Haggai, uh, this is written during the time of the exile, shortly after. So, as you may know, in the year 587, uh, the Babylonians came and they sacked Jerusalem and they took all of the educated uh, persons off to Babylon. They left a few people to till the fields there, burned down the city, ruined the walls, burned the temple, etc. And uh, after some years, uh, Cyrus, king of the Persians and the Medes, uh, took Babylon. He actually conquered Babylon. And uh, Cyrus was a very clever guy. And he realized that you could uh, actually accomplish more as, a, as an emperor uh, by, you know, sort of helping the locals against the intermediate power structures. So he offered amnesty to any Jews who wanted to go back to the Holy Land. And so a group of them with Ezra and Nehemiah went back to the uh, Holy Land and started rebuilding the temple. Haggai was one of the great prophets at this time. And he prophesied that someday uh, all the treasures of the nations will be poured into the temple in Jerusalem. So the temple at this point is not in very good shape. It's, it's kind of been put back together, but it wasn't as nice as Solomon's temple. Later, Herod the Great would rebuild it in a much nicer way. Uh, and uh, we hear about this that... Uh, you know, when, when our Lord gets into a controversy with the Pharisees, they talk about, hey, it's taken like 40-some years to build the temple, and you say you're going to build it in three days, right? Um, so, but when, back to Haggai, so, so several hundred years before this, uh, looking at the sad sack of the temple, uh, Haggai says, you know, it, it doesn't look very impressive, and obviously, compared to Babylon, compared to Persia, compared to eventually the Greeks and the Romans, Israel doesn't look like it amounts to much. But someday, because Israel worships the true God, all of the treasures that you see, you know, you can imagine when these people were carted off to Babylon and they see, you know, if you've been to the Oriental Institute, for example, here in Chicago, you see what kind of riches they had in Babylon. People would have said like, wow, we really were a backwater. You know, we didn't realize this, but they have the goods here in Babylon. Haggai says, no, no, all these Treasures are going to be poured into our temple because it's the temple of the true living God. And um, when this gets translated into Latin, it be becomes this word desideratus. That's another participle. <laughs> but this time it's, a, it's, a, it's not a present <clears throat> participle, but it's a past passive. So it's those things that are desirable, the things that are desired. Um, so that, that's literally a treasure, right? Treasure is something everybody wants. Uh, whatever your treasure is, uh, that's where your heart is, right? Uh, that's what we desire. 
And what the father saw in this is they took it literally. It's like, what? This is kind of what you're getting at with the pagans. Whatever it is that human beings desire, what, the, what these desires really point to is Christ. That's what we really are seeking in our lives. Because it's Christ that shows us uh, what it means to be human, what it means to be loved, what it means to uh, be chosen and known by God, what, it, what uh, it means to find order to all the different things in our lives and have them make sense. It's Christ that does this. So he is the desired one of the nations. So he's not only their king, you know, Christ is the king of all of the universe because he is God, uh, but he's also that which all peoples desire. And, and so again, anything that's true in the human heart, it's the point of Nostra Aetate and its teaching, points in some way to Christ. It's for us as, as Catholics to help people see this and then to bring them to Christ, so to make sense of them. He's the cornerstone. Um, our Lord refers to himself this way. Um, there, there, I, could, I could do a whole lecture on Christ as the cornerstone. I'll spare you that today. The many, many ways in which Christ is the cornerstone. You know, he joins the human and the divine. He, he joins the, the Jews and the nations, right? So they're the two walls and they come uh, to this one point and it's Christ that locks them together. And he, he's also, you know, this word cornerstone, depending on the translation, it can also mean capstone or keystone. So again, the, the way that an arch is built is that you have this one stone and you have the two arches are falling to the, toward the center and it's the stone in the middle that keeps them up, right? If you, if you pull out the capstone, the whole arch collapses. So it's Christ that holds the two arches together and, and the, the weight of these stones presses against him and joins them together. So um, there, there's a, there are many, many ways in which uh, we can read that. Uh, and again, uh, I've, I've already mentioned, he fashioned us from uh, slime, dust, <coughs> dust with, with spittle, right? Okay. Uh, finally, O Emmanuel. Um, I'll tell you this briefly and then I have a couple things to say about our, our monastic customs with these. Emmanuel is a, is a Hebrew word. It means literally... Uh, Emanu means with us. El is a name for God. It's an interesting name for God, by the way, uh, because it, it means sort of generic God. Okay? Uh, so God is with us. Our king and our lawgiver. So here again, God is king. God gives the law. The purpose of the law is to give order to a people, right? So it's, again, to bring about a sense of purpose, a sense of common purpose, a sense of belonging, a sense of justice, all those things. We have a tendency, you know, uh, in, in Protestant cultures to have a low opinion of the law uh, and oppose it to faith in a, in a strong way that uh, is not really traditional. Uh, so when we talk about God as the lawgiver, uh, the fathers would have seen this as a good thing. The hope of the nations, you know, what the, the nations are waiting for, and their savior. Um, and we'll see this uh, really fulfilled in the celebration of the epiphany when the, in the person of the three kings or the three wise men, uh, the, the nations come to recognize Christ as their king and by extension as their God. Uh, 
And uh, so let me just say a little bit about uh, our monastic customs because this will be interesting. So obviously we sing these at Vespers, but we also sing them at a couple other times during the day. December 17th is kind of when we begin celebrating Christmas. When you find in, uh, I always get a kick out of this, uh, a good friend of mine is Presbyterian. Uh, she used to come and play violin at liturgies here. And then uh, she and her husband uh, moved out to Connecticut where they live now. And I'd call her up and say, oh, we're having such and such a feast. She's like, you Catholics, you're all, you got so many feasts. Like you're always celebrating something. <laughs> it's true. It's actually true. And um, you know, even in these penitential or sort of moderately penitential seasons like Advent, uh, there's this, it's almost like we can't wait. You know, there's this great anticipation for Christmas. Uh, there's this great anticipation to see the truth, to get to Christ. And so these O antiphons sort of raise that anticipation and also give us a reason to celebrate uh, even before Christmas. And uh, so what we do in our monastery, on the 17th, we have a special recreation. And one of the brothers uh, actually uh, intones the first O antiphon that night, O Sapientia, and we all sing it at the beginning of recreation together. Also, um, what we... <clears throat> We have different brothers intone these antiphons at the office, and it depends on what uh, their job is in the monastery. So for instance, the building manager, his brother Augustine, he always intones uh, Clavis David, you know, he, the key bearer one. Um, Sapiensi is usually the librarian. Um, the prior always gets Emmanuel because it's the last one. Uh, and also because the, the abbot, or in my, our case, the prior, holds the place of Christ in the community, so God is with us. Um, Oriens is the, the brother who's supposed to ring the bell to wake us up in the morning. <laughs> so we, each, each brother has a special day that, that he intones the antiphon. And then he, we also sing it at the meal, and that brother intones it at the meal as well. And that's how we begin the meal of the day. Uh, at Vespers, the brother vests in a cope, uh, so uh, it's also a way of honoring the different offices in the monastery. And again, we can look at these offices as just having a kind of perfunctory, pragmatic thing, or we can see in the offices of the monastery, God ordering our lives in a way that we can all work together toward a common goal. And we all, we all, we don't go to God individually in a non-differentiated way but we go together as an articulated body. You know, some of us are eyes, some are hands, some are feet. And uh, this is how we image for ourselves who we are in relation to Christ, in relation to God, in relation to each other. Um, we, we, <coughs> we don't go as undifferentiated individuals and we sort of build this into our, our celebration of the last week of Advent. All right, so um, Part of the ordering of our lives is that we stop at certain times for prayer. So I'm going to stop speaking there, give you a chance to ask questions for the last five minutes or so. Thank you so much. I, I, I realize as I get going into this, you know, there's, there's a lot more here than I can fit into an hour, hour and 15 minutes. <laughs> You're welcome. Good. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we uh, conclude with a prayer to Our Lady, and uh, then those of you who would like can, can come upstairs with me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. 
Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.